Hi, I'm Maria Ramper, the host of Oricon's Engineering Reimagined podcast, and I'm jumping in your ears to let you know about a different kind of recording this week. At Oricon, we have published an audiobook named Just Imagine, What Lies at the Heart of a Sustainable Future, that we think you will very much enjoy. The audiobook looks at what we can learn from the much-loved Wizard of Oz story to help us find our way back to creating a more sustainable planet Earth, featuring blogs from Oricon's award-winning Just Imagine series. Listen on if you'd like to be inspired and challenged, and please share with your friends or colleagues, as the more listeners we have, the more of these books we can create. The audiobook can be found on the Oricon website or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll pop a link into the show notes. Just imagine what lies at the heart of a sustainable future, an anthology of blogs. Foreword from William Cox, Oricon Global Chief Officer, and Paul Gleeson, Oricon Board's Sustainability Committee Advisor and Managing Director for Energy, Resources and Water in Australia and New Zealand. Stories help us make sense of journeys. They explain things to us in a way we can understand, and they allow us to build a common message and a common purpose. The Wizard of Oz is a tale known and beloved by many across the world. Another tale that is just as well known, although not quite so popular, is the story of how climate change is affecting our planet. While we don't yet know the ending to that story, we've been exploring ideas and asking questions about how to shape a climate-friendly existence in our award-winning Just Imagine blog. There are plenty of articles and reports about sustainability that are filled with stats and facts. We've authored some of them. We didn't think we needed another one. We thought that sharing some of our people's ideas around this pressing issue through the lens of a well-known story might help engage for a while longer and build a better understanding. Just as a human heart is responsible for keeping blood flowing and a body functioning, our planet can only stay alive with a healthy and sustainable ecosystem. And luckily at Oricon, unlike the poor tin man in Oz before Dorothy came to the rescue, we have a lot of heart. This collection of blogs from the past four years contains views of Oricon people from the time they were written, reflecting the diverse journeys and stories of different industries and sectors on the path towards achieving a sustainable, low-carbon future. What we have done, how far we have come, and what else we can do. You may be surprised at the parallels between The Wizard of Oz and the impacts that climate change is wreaking on our world. Looking at the issue of sustainability and climate change through the lens of a classic story is a bit different, somewhat unconventional, but perhaps it will help us to see the problem differently and learn something. That's what Just Imagine is all about. Happy reading. Part 1. Finding Our Way Back the road to Emerald City is paved in yellow brick, but as Dorothy and her companions will tell you, the path to find your way back home can be far less conspicuous. After all, home is not just a physical footprint, but a state of being and belonging, and the road to take you back is not always the one you took to get there. But home is meant to be a place of permanence, a space where all is well, and today's world is anything but that. As breakthroughs in science and technology advance, humanity faces challenges of planetary proportions. Rapid environmental degradation, global warming, deforestation and increased weather volatility, matched by burgeoning urbanisation and overpopulation, together tell a rather grim story of our earthly status and where humanity is heading. Could a planet rocked by climate change be our current Oz? In many ways, yes. Like Dorothy, we're living with a sense of disconnect that is causing us to live ecologically unhinged. Perhaps Kansas is a world we once had, where humanity and Earth lived in a state of symbiosis and our appetites did not out-eat what the Earth could offer up. Wouldn't home then be our sustainable future? But here's what we and Dorothy don't share in common. She didn't exactly have a choice to go to Oz. Her body was transported by wind, witchery and a borderline coma. We, on the other hand, are wide awake. 
We have the option to choose this future and whether we want to keep laying our demise one brick at a time. We can determine which way the story ends based on how we respond to the challenges at hand today. Unfortunately, a simple click of the heels won't be enough to make it all okay again. There is no magic formula that will reset this clock. We'll have to deploy our best tools and technologies to safeguard a sustainable future and face up to the stark reality of our world now. Perhaps most importantly, we will need what a cowardly lion, a scarecrow and a tin man needed too. We will need courage, brains and a big heart to find our way back home. Welcome to the Anthropocene, published 3rd of July 2018. There's nothing more innocuous than a single sheet of cling film wrapped around your chicken mayo sandwich. But add up all those sandwiches and suddenly you're looking at a picnic of cataclysmic proportions. Professor Jan Zalasiewicz of Leicester University has revealed that if all the plastic waste produced to date were converted to cling film, it would be enough to not only wrap billions of sandwiches and leftovers, but to wrap the entire planet as a whole. Welcome to the Anthropocene, a new geological epoch that recognises the mark that humans have made on Earth. The concerning thing is plastic waste is only one facet of a much larger set of interconnected impacts arising from our civilization. With an estimated 16 million tonnes of plastic added to our oceans annually, combined with civilization's other waste products dispersing into the environment, we could face everything from unpredictable climate change to mass extinction. Some would argue that the end of the world is nigh. Most would say where to blame for it, regardless of where your apocalyptic leanings lie. The term Anthropocene was coined by Nobel Prize-winning scientist Paul Crutzen in 2000, asserting that the predominance of Earth's major natural systems over billions of years has been overhauled by human activity in an infinitesimal period of time. Through our insatiable appetite for fossil fuels and other finite resources, humanity's impact has started to significantly alter the geological patterns and compositions of our habitats and atmosphere in a measurable way. Is it really possible that the Earth, which managed to outlive the Ice Age and mass meteor destruction, could be derailed by the human species which, in relative terms, has just joined the geological timescale? Many scientists would say yes. Is this the end of life as we know it? Or is this another tale of creative adaptation? You decide. A change in the climates of the climate. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and best-selling author Thomas Friedman argues that we're in the middle of not one, but three simultaneous climate changes, one environmental, one economic, and one technological. First, there is climate change and the knowledge that the time where we could fix any environmental problem, either now or later, has shifted to be needing to be fixed now. Next, the climate of globalisation has changed. The world is no longer just interconnected, it is now interdependent. Lastly, the climate of technology has changed. People are adapting to a world with cloud computing, artificial intelligence and big data. These changes have created a business environment where you can analyse, optimise, prophesize, customise and digitise anything, Friedman says. If we want to discern the times, we have to start by understanding that we have no time. There is a sense of urgency underpinning the Anthropocene where we no longer have the luxury of later. If in the past you could delay any climate or environmental problem for later, today there is no later. Later will sadly be too late. The key is to study and consider these three climate changes and see how we can get the most out of these changes while cushioning the worst. How can we utilise technology to build agile businesses and mitigate environmental risks? How can AI stay one step ahead of our anticipated pitfalls and outwit our demise? And if the collective actions by humans have the capacity to bring actual change to the world, as the Anthropocene suggests, how can we turn the tables and use that ability for the good? Interpreting and deploying these factors within the context of globalisation will determine how well we navigate through an uncertain and risky future. Our next move is critical, and we have to think of a good one and fast. Rolling out renewables red carpet. Engineer and inventor Elon Musk would say it's not only a matter of asking the right questions, it's also a matter of time, says Tesla's founder, 
I look at the future from the standpoint of probabilities. It's like a branching stream of probabilities and there are actions that we can take that affect those probabilities or that accelerate one thing or slow down another thing. If you don't have sustainable energy, it means you have unsustainable energy. Eventually, you will run out and the laws of economics will drive civilization towards sustainable energy inevitably. Musk has always insisted that Tesla's ultimate purpose isn't to build cars. It's to help the world to transition away from reliance on fossil fuels and toward the embrace of sustainable energy sources. The degree to which any of his inventions accelerate the advent of sustainable energy faster than it would otherwise occur is the degree to which that invention will hold value down the line. Renewable energy is at a tipping point. Wind, solar and battery energy are seeing an exponential fall in cost and an exponential rise in the uptake of these technologies. In December, Tesla officially inaugurated the world's largest lithium-ion battery in Australia, making good on CEO Elon Musk's promise to deliver a solution to power outages in the state within 100 days of signing a contract. Tesla's 100-megawatt battery, located at a wind power plant north of Adelaide, can independently power up to 30,000 homes for an hour. As we wait for major breakthroughs and game changes, such as the widespread use of solar power, second-generation biofuels, and potentially transformative technologies like commercial nuclear fusion energy, Musk would be the first to agree. When it comes to renewable and other alternative energy sources, we're only getting started. All hands on deck. But technological advancement can only be carried so far on the shoulders of a few individuals. People are mistaken when they think that technology just automatically improves. It does not automatically improve. It only improves if a lot of people work very hard to make it better. And actually, I think it will by itself degrade, Musk adds. And if it does degrade, where does that leave us? Ultimately, the Anthropocene calls for society to adopt an all-hands-on-deck approach to its monumental mission. Every facet of civil society, business, non-profits, academic institutions, governments, consumers and more need to be involved in the conversation. There is no later or tomorrow or maybe next year. The time is now. We need to reimagine design that is comprehensive, holistic and integrative enough to offer robust solutions and help humanity to not just survive, but also thrive on a complex Anthropocene landscape. Beyond buildings, we need to design for sustainable precincts, entire urban ecosystems that merge sustainable buildings, urban design, infrastructure and socioeconomic and community needs into one organic system. Every element contributing to the flow and functionality of that ecosystem must work together to optimise its overall livability and green design. Imagine, for example, if every new building required a transportation plan so that the inhabitants could move between their home, work and other locations without the consumption of fossil fuel. Or consider that by 2025, new buildings will generate 90% of the power that they consume. The implications of such designs would roll out like ripples over every sphere of city planning, rendering major shifts in the way we invest, build and envision a future-ready society. The Anthropocene is indeed as elusive and daunting as the word itself. The global and interconnected nature of our problems could leave us wide-eyed and paralysed to act. But the sooner we grasp the magnitude of the problem, the sooner we can spring to intelligent action and get everyone to collaborate for change. Is it too late for that? Some may say so. On the other hand, let's not sit around waiting to find out. We are now in the Anthropocene. Time to make your next move, humans. Microplastics. Small plastics, big problem. Published 5th of June, 2018. Almost everything we own and buy contains plastics. Look around. If it's not the chair you're sitting on, or that part of a pen in your drawer, that bottle in your refrigerator, it may be this thing you're holding. Your smartphone or a keyboard or a tablet, they are everywhere. But before you blame plastic water bottles and candy wrappers solely for climate change or marine plastic pollution, think again. It turns out, as with many other relationships, sometimes it's the small thing that creates the biggest impacts. And in this case, it's the plastics that we don't see the microplastics that are about to damage the world we are living in. We have to wake up before it's too late.
it's not just small stuff. The United Nations Environmental Programme, UNEP, identified microplastics as one of the alarming issues that we should keep an eye on as plastic pollution remains the biggest threat to marine biodiversity today. But are we already many years too late? Based on current rates of plastic pollution, the World Economic Forum predicts that by 2050 there will be more plastic than fish in our oceans. Microplastics, whilst tiny, pack a big punch. They've been around for more than five decades as microbeads and microfibres, ranging in size from 0.5 to 5 millimetres in length, and we have unknowingly let them into our homes and closets as they've replaced the natural ingredients of our personal care products and cosmetics, such as toothpaste, facial and body scrubs, and have been manufactured into some of the clothes we love to wear. However, it's not actually the products that directly harm us, but rather what happens to them after they go down the drain. These synthetic fabrics, such as polyesters and acrylics that we love to wear, have been found to release more than 700,000 particles to the environment after just one cycle in the washing machine. In a study titled Plastic Pollution in the World's Oceans, oceanographer Dr Marcus Erickson and his team went on several expeditions to investigate which kind of plastics were most polluting the oceans. To their surprise, significantly outnumbering bigger plastic items such as toothbrushes and the balls in deodorant roll-ons were confetti-sized and smaller shreds of plastic. Because here's something that not all people know. Plastics rarely degrade. Once these microplastics enter our water system, treatment facilities cannot break them down or filter them out, and they end up in the ocean, mistaken for food by fish and other sea creatures, ultimately infiltrating our lives via our food chain. Plastic pollution is surfing onto Indonesian beaches, settling onto the ocean floor at the North Pole, and rising through the food chain onto our dinner tables, says United Nations Environment Program Executive Director Eric Solheim. We've stood by too long as the problem has gotten worse. It must stop, he said. True enough, not only have microplastics been found in fish and shellfish, they have also been found in beer, honey, tap water, sugar and even air. We just didn't know it. And contrary to popular belief, when it comes to microplastics, what we don't know can actually hurt us. One health, one environment. When it comes to microplastics, what we don't know can actually hurt us. Now here's where it gets scarier. While the studies about the effects of microplastics are still at a relatively early stage, initial research published by UNEP and in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, have discovered that eating plastic particles may cause reduced activity rates, reproductive disruption, weakened schooling behaviour, and altered feeding behaviour among sea creatures. How does this affect humans? According to the One Health approach, the health of all living things, humans, animals and plants, and everything that surrounds us are interconnected. If something is wrong with the animals and plants around us, then something is likely to go wrong with us, unless we do something about it. Microplastic may not only affect species at the organism level, they may also have the capacity to modify population structure with potential impacts on ecosystem dynamics, including bacteria and viruses. Negative effects on the photosynthesis of primary producers and on the growth of secondary producers potentially result in a reduced productivity of the whole ecosystem and represent a primary concern, according to a report by the Joint Group of Experts on the Scientific Aspects of Marine Environmental Protection. Our understanding of the fate and toxicity of microplastics in humans constitutes a major knowledge gap that deserves special attention, it adds. So if we ignore this issue now, it is probable that the plastic soup will no longer be metaphorical in the next 20 or 50 years. It will be a reality, and one at a scale we simply can't ignore. Can we survive without plastics? The journey to a plastic-free world may be unimaginable to think about now. The truth is, if almost everything around us is made up of plastic, it's going to be hard to live without them, especially if they are cheaper, durable and more convenient to use. There are, however, many things that we can do on a personal level to reduce our consumption of plastic, such as using reusable bags for groceries, buying cotton and wool clothing and using stainless steel water bottles and compostable rubbish bin liners. 
In 2017, the US and UK legally banned the use of microbeads. But what if banning plastics entirely is not the answer? Shifting to a genuine circular economy for plastics is a massive opportunity to close the loop, save billions of dollars and decouple plastics production from fossil fuel consumption, says Dame Ellen MacArthur. According to a report by her foundation, manufacturers could redesign plastic items so they could be reused better and rethink their production methods to make recycling easier. More products could be made out of materials which can be composted on an industrial scale, including rubbish bags for organic waste and food packaging for outdoor events, canteens and fast food outlets. In December 2017, the French government reaffirmed an important commitment towards tackling plastic pollution by pledging to recycle 100% of plastics by 2025. A number of large manufacturers such as Nestle, Adidas, Unilever and HP Hewlett-Packard have recently started initiatives looking for alternatives to make their products and their packaging sustainable and environment-friendly. To tackle this crisis, there is an urgent need for governments, industry and entrepreneurs to develop systematic, more innovative and more audacious solutions that prevent plastic from becoming waste in the first place. Turning oil to plastic and back again. Priyanka Bakaya is one entrepreneur who has discovered the power of plastic waste, quite literally. Bakaya is an Australian-American entrepreneur and founder of a clean energy company which converts plastic waste into fuel. Her company, Renewology, makes diesel, kerosene, light fuels in a process that chemically takes the plastics back down into their basic building blocks without creating toxic emissions in the process. Inventors are watching closely. Meanwhile, China has done the world a favour. In January, China stopped taking the world's plastics back for recycling for environmental reasons. Recyclers worldwide were left scrambling for alternatives. This is a good thing. What if every country closed its doors to others' waste? This could drive greater innovation and new business opportunities that benefit local communities. In the UK, scientists and engineers from the University of Bath have developed a way of making microbeads from cellulose, which is not only from a renewable source, but also biodegrades into harmless sugars. Work is underway to scale this process for manufacturing. If offered a choice, consumers will prefer not to rub plastic into their skins when they exfoliate. Brands that are earlier adopters of these alternative ingredients can create competitive advantage. So how might we get products to people without generating plastic waste and mitigate a potential eco-genocide? We're not sure yet, but some smart people and organisations are working on finding solutions. If nothing else, microplastics have taught us that sometimes the smallest things can make the biggest impact. Part 2. Courage. To be found, you must first admit that you are lost. Your proverbial palms need to sweat a bit as you navigate the urgency of the hour and a deep-seated sense of disorientation. There's an implied crisis and an understandable panic which ensues when you realise you're off the map and treading on unsafe territory. And isn't that where we find ourselves today? In a world of constant shift laced with crisis and wicked challenges that we've created for ourselves, from world hunger to water scarcity, global pandemics to rising poverty. The 21st century landscape is riddled with opportunity to take Winston Churchill at his word and never let a good crisis go to waste. The cowardly lion knows this too well. As the wizard advised him, true courage isn't found in the absence of fear, but rather in actually marching on despite its presence. It will take courage to interrogate our current ways and to reroute our trajectory into uncharted ground where we can find brave solutions for our problems. It will require true grit and determination to leapfrog failure and to ask for directions along the way. But Courage says getting lost is not the ultimate defeat. It may be the only way to find the new road forward and march on. The sobering lessons for climate change that COVID-19 teaches us, but is anyone listening? Published 14th of April 2020. The hardest lessons to learn are the ones that stay with us the longest. If listened to and absorbed, the really tough lessons we face can have the greatest impact. 
If that saying is true, what does this lesson of a global pandemic, the likes of which have never been seen before, teach us and our leaders for the other big challenges we face? What does it tell us we need to do in the face of climate change or other global challenges? Will it expose our inability to quickly embrace a common platform for dealing with an existential threat, rendering us unable to overcome self-interest? Or will it teach us that the pathway to action has to find a common narrative between the needs of keeping countries and economies moving whilst finding the agreed transition path to the sustainable future we know we need? One clear lesson from COVID-19 is that none of us like abrupt shocks to our system. Perhaps the lingering memories of today's pain points will become the seeds of more definitive action addressing the climate change challenge. Very few voices have argued for ignoring the COVID-19 pandemic. They might want a quicker shutdown or a faster reopening of the economy. They might argue over the human costs compared to the costs of shutting down businesses. But there are few heads completely in the sand. At some point, we'll be on the other side of this crisis and we'll have all of the reports and white papers to draw on. But for those of us involved in climate-centred strategies, the COVID-19 response is already yielding lessons. The PR of emergencies. You might have seen the meme advising that climate change needs to hire coronavirus's publicist. The political communication around COVID-19 has been overwhelmingly on the side of caution and action, with detailed cost-benefit descriptions of what has to be sacrificed economically in order to mitigate public health risks. This hasn't just been explained in terms of how businesses will be lost, but also how much governments have to spend. Sitting on our hands has not been an option, and governments around the world have taken the rapid, decisive action to shut down their economies rather than let this virus take hold. Compare this to the constant wranglings, denial and arguments over climate action. Of course, the biggest difference between climate change and COVID-19 is immediacy, both in terms of time and space. Coronavirus kills people today, and we can see and understand the consequences on TV, radio, the internet, and social media. But climate change is incremental, discussed in terms of 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius of warming over decades. Coronavirus is transmitted via the immediacy of space. My actions can be directly traced to impacts on my neighbours, friends, and family, or anyone else within arm's length. But my actions relating to climate change are felt by faceless, nameless people in far-removed places and aren't traced nearly as neatly to my own actions. There's also no uniformity of approach for the climate. One group of nations commits to decarbonising their economies, another says its emissions will grow for another 20 years, and another group seek reparations from the big emitters. A divided response is a confused response. Impacts of a global economy The COVID-19 and climate crises have something in common that many of us do not want to talk about. The need for a global transport system, for freight and people, and the emissions that come with it are already responsible for almost one quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. The OECD estimates the number of ton-kilometres of freight in our transport systems will triple to 2050. This is quite aside from the extra energy requirements of regions that build industrial capacity where none previously existed. The corresponding problem of globalisation that has led to coronavirus is the speed and ease with which the virus could originate in Wuhan and be spread to the entire world via commercial global transport systems. The first thing to be shut down by governments in the COVID-19 pandemic was international arrivals at airports. We all accepted this instinctively very quickly. By comparison, the climate change threat is unlikely to ever see a shutdown in global transport and travel. Indeed, transport, air travel in particular, has been a hands-off zone for many when it comes to deep decarbonisation. Interestingly, one likely shift post-pandemic will be more local manufacturing, as countries look to secure their own supply chains. Again, the climate may be an unintended beneficiary, given commercial international freight has been one of the fastest-growing sources of emissions in the past decade. A sign of symptoms pushed too far. The coronavirus response has been couched in scientific language but is intuitive. We talk of social distancing and community transmissions, closing our borders, quarantining ships and stockpiling critical supplies. 
None of these concepts are unusual to humans, even to those who think governments are overreacting. We instinctively understand that the human social system is one of smaller groups and that unfettered travel can be a gateway to disease. So self-isolation is annoying, but we understand it, and those who can immediately swap travel for Skype, Zoom or Teams. Yet exchanging travel for FaceTime was also a choice three months and six months and a year ago when the imperative was addressing climate change and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But we didn't shut down our travel, let alone entire economies. We told ourselves that video conferencing just wasn't the same as being there. As it happens, systems thinking is also the basis of climate change. The Earth's system strikes a balance and the release of too many man-made greenhouse gases into the atmosphere eventually tips the climate system to a dangerous point. This should or could also be an intuitive human concept, as straightforward as the idea that social distancing holds us back from a public health tipping point, but we struggle to cut through. The next phase. There is much to be learned from the coronavirus responses, but perhaps governments dealing with this can also learn from climate strategists. As governments roll out wage subsidy packages and low-risk business loans, the next phase, the economic reconstruction phase, is going to entail a lot of stimulus spending. It is important that amidst the inevitable construction of roads and freeways, the infrastructure build-out includes the assets required of the decarbonising world. In a country like Australia, where more than 70% of our electricity still comes from fossil fuels, this stimulus construction phase might be the once-in-a-generation chance to build what would otherwise be put off. New interconnectors between South Australia and New South Wales, Tasmania and Victoria to enable the deployment of more utility-scale wind, solar and pumped hydro, kick-starting the hydrogen industry with a focus not just on production facilities, but also the transport and industrial applications which will provide the demand. Distributed energy resources like residential batteries and energy management systems that mean we have to produce less power at source during peak times just to name a few. Perhaps this is where COVID-19 and climate change can cross over. One is immediate, while the other is incremental. If we have to stimulate our economy out of the hibernation we are putting it into, why not build the infrastructure that gives both our communities and the planet a fighting chance in the long term? Part 3. The Brain Today's world demands unmatched innovation to forge solutions that can wrap their arms around the complexities of climate change. Our problems are formidable, but so too is our capacity to solve them. Author Julian Simon would argue, in fact, that the secret source to sustainable development is the power of human ingenuity. People are the most important resource, he says. Artificial intelligence is good at replicating intelligent behaviour, but intelligent thought is another matter altogether. When it comes to creativity and innovation, the human brain is still hands down the most supreme machine on earth. There's a complex, compelling, deeply mysterious nature to human cognition, one that outpaces our algorithms and drives a voracious hunger for knowledge and invention. It's why we thrust ourselves into the stars and continually seek out problems to solve. We are hardwired to pull back the curtain and see what's on the other side. More than ever, we have to bring our best thoughts to the table. We have to test the strength of our conventional thinking and unlearn old patterns that blunt the cutting edge of our innovations. The opportunity stands as never before to exercise our human creative capacities so that knowledge can be effectively transformed into positive, long-lasting change. We are poised to harness extraordinary solutions for wicked problems if we learn to untap the power of our unlimited human potential. The Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion and the Scarecrow failed to recognise what was already inside them. They looked outward to the perceived power of an ultimately impotent wizard to endorse a quality that never needed endorsement. Will we choose to be different in today's story? The temptation is there to outsource our responsibility to 21st century magic, to assume that our digital wizardry will somehow wave its wand over our problems and make it all better. However, waiting on technology alone to work like magic and solve all our climate change woes will just be too long and too late. The key is seeing now what we innately possess to conquer the crisis. 
when it comes to paving our sustainable future, we already have everything we need. Is going off grid really better for the environment? Published 20th of September 2016. If rising global temperatures worry you, you're not alone. Frustrated that fossil fuels still account for around 80% of the world's energy consumption, thousands of homes have invested in combined solar battery storage systems. And that figure is expected to grow to 1 million in Australia alone by 2020. But is going off-grid really the most sustainable choice a consumer can make? As renewables become affordable, more and more people are cutting their wires and adopting a minimalist lifestyle, particularly in rural areas where the cost to connect to the grid is high. For city dwellers, however, powering our lives in this manner isn't cost-effective, given the home ground, i.e. sunk cost advantage the existing grid has over emerging technology. Living off the grid and expecting the same reliability of 99.999% requires a huge amount of equipment even for one household. A reliance on the sun and limited battery storage makes it difficult to meet typical evening peak energy needs unless you're happy to go without a television, a fridge and a washing machine. Today's batteries last 10 years before needing to be replaced and then discarded. With the carbon impact of manufacturing, supplying and disposing of these batteries, how environmentally friendly is this really? All the while, the rest of us who are still connected to the grid are reducing our energy consumption by changing wasteful behaviour and using energy-efficient appliances. For energy utilities, this means an oversupply of capacity and lower revenues. Big spending on distribution system upgrades in the last decade has compounded their woes. It's time to accept the fact that the energy industry has been disrupted. If the trend towards going off-grid continues, are we dangerously close to setting off a chain of events whereby existing assets become white elephants, stranded and worthless? Or is there another way? What do smart businesses do when they've been disrupted? They go back to the drawing board and find a way to disrupt the disruptors. Have we reached a tipping point for utilities to start repurposing the grid and changing their business model? People are likely to continue installing solar cells, even as government subsidies reduce, until such time as the grid decarbonises. If the grid doesn't use fossil fuels, then there is limited incentive for people to move to household-level renewables. Founder of Global Sharing Week, Benita Matovska, says, Traditional businesses can either fly the flag for the status quo and go down with it, or they can be smart about it and enable a new way of thinking, living and doing sustainable business. Those who do will survive and thrive. Just one of the opportunities for energy utilities derives from the notion that household renewable assets needn't always be consumer-owned. Companies like Solar City are emerging, which provide solar panels that you can lease rather than buy. Should energy utilities focus on looking for ways to work with startups to facilitate the rollout of solar and storage at scale? And who said that the renewable energy generated by each household can't be shared? Imagine subscribing to energy via a sharing platform and using an app to trade energy with other people and businesses. To make this future smart city scenario possible, we need to continue to invest in emerging technologies to commercialise the ones that show promise and to optimise the ones we already know work well. Tesla's Powerwall is today's high-profile home battery storage product, but there's no shortage of players lining up to compete, ultimately putting downward pressure on costs, which will drive further mass-market appeal and adoption of these smart solutions. And let's not forget the power of community. We need only look at today's smartest cities for inspiration. The successful Citizen Solar Power Plants Initiative, a partnership of Vienna, Austria and Wien Energy, offered locals the opportunity to invest in the city's solar plants to help achieve its renewable energy objectives. The switch to renewable energy has already been flicked. Smart utilities that are willing to drive change toward a cleaner future will prosper, but it's going to take the turning off of a lot of old paradigms to do so. Planet Trump's Project in Precinct Design, published 25th of September 2017. Animals have a way of beating the odds by using what's been given. If it's not the one-inch cathedral termite that architects a five-metre home on the Australian outback, it's the beaver who rearranges the river's flow with its buck teeth. 
All around us, nature is giving and taking, budding and dying, to keep the same centuries-old symbiotic song playing. Once upon a time, humans were no exception to this rule. Arctic Eskimos were given the option of ice or more ice, and so igloos were born as dome-shaped structures that miraculously had you peeling off some layers when blizzard storms blew. Populations in the tropics adapted to the heat and humidity by building lightweight elevated timber structures with wide openings and breezeways to allow cool night air to permeate their houses and remove the heat build-up from the day. Generally, we were pretty good at staying in step with the environment for a very long time. But somewhere along the way, our intellectual superpowers meant we didn't have to work with only what Mother Nature had dished up for our disposal. We could actually change it. And the greater our ability to re-engineer our habitats to our advantage, the more detrimental it tended to be to our habitats. One project at a time, we've been rearranging our built spaces to satisfy our immediate demands. Casualties in our wake have just been crammed under the carpet. Let's face it, if you've got money, you can beat your own ecological odds. When it's hot, turn up the air conditioning. If there's drought, suck the water out of the ground or squeeze the salt out of the seawater. And voila, no rain dance needed. The paradox, of course, is that by doing these things, we only make it hotter and drier for the rest of the world, with the most vulnerable populations bearing the heaviest blow. Make no mistake there always is a price to pay. It's just a question of who pays it. In a world of no constraints, can we be trusted not to swing the pendulum hard towards the easy solution? But can we actually be trusted to take the time to find the middle, where we uphold both the immediate and long-term picture? If we're going to find this optimum balance, we're going to have to think precinct over project and planet over precinct. We're going to have to step back and look at the overall ecosystem we are building. Our job is not merely to meet the brief, but to transform communities into a better picture than the one we inherited. Building our hives. For centuries, we've been upgrading our own hives. We live, eat and sleep inside the security and comfort of our homes. We learn inside the four walls of school, college or university. Our careers are often crafted over time inside a custom-designed building. We gather food in built biospheres called malls. To get around, we carve out roads that crisscross canyons or cut straight through mountains. When we want to exercise, we join air-conditioned gyms or visit sporting venues. Slowly over time, we are re-engineering the landscape to serve our habits and lifestyles. But each individual design has wide-scale impact that ripples through society. When a double-lane road is thrown down to get traffic flowing, it also severs the natural flow of that community. When a shopping centre comes to town, suddenly the pleasant chats around the neighbourhood corner store dissipate and the social glue that forms the community fabric begins to break down. Spaces slapped by mega malls and high-density roads are no longer intuitive and integrative, but disjointed ecosystems that cut through the sweet intangibles that make community what it is. Going beyond the brief. Project by project, we are reinventing our world. We meet the brief, we may even wow the client and one-up it, but if we treat that project as an isolated design, then to some degree we've actually failed. With climate change and urban influx breathing down our backs, we can't afford to think in boxes anymore. We have to align our work to a bigger story. We have to think of every project as part of the tapestry that interweaves the social fabric of the community in which it is placed. We need to put the soul back into project briefs, where human interaction can flourish and community is nurtured. When was the last time a project brief had a requirement to increase the amount of serendipitous moments of human interaction? Technology, public works, architecture and policy all have a part to play in the push towards sustainable urbanism. The goal being sustainable and livable, the idea is to live simpler and far more connected as people and built environments to the natural world around us. And thanks to this rising conscientiousness, cities are starting to rethink the way they build and plan so that green, high-performance buildings and infrastructure are connected by walkways, cycling paths, bus routes and other transport systems with a low-carbon footprint. But the reality is these pockets of progressiveness are still rare. 
Even if fantastic innovations are remodelling the neighbourhood, rarely do they talk to the core components of urban planning and together build an overall vibe, a sense of place that pulsates with purpose. Usually, they hit the technical and ideological targets of the building, and that's about it. Rebecca Solnit put it this way, In great cities, spaces, as well as places, are designed and built. Walking, witnessing, being in public are as much part of the design and purpose as is being inside to eat, sleep, make shoes or love or music. The word citizen has to do with cities, and the ideal city is organised around citizenship, around participation in public life. The role of the engineer is not only to create an exceptional space, but to foster a place that has personality and flavour. Advising on the future. If we wear the capes in this superhero saga, shouldn't we do more than just serve up what the client ordered? Surely we should be using our powers to show the way. With insight into the project's long-term impact, who better to advise and negotiate for the end user, owner and community than the engineer? Understanding the clockwork of a city is understanding what makes it tick and come to life. And understanding this requires some serious headlocking between urbanists, scientists, economists, ecologists, architects and engineers. Through this kind of tight collaboration, we can pick up the city's peculiar heartbeat and make sure that each of our investments together make the city become a better version of itself. Engineering is both prophetic and proactive. We pull down conceptions into reality and modify our physical world with the unimaginable. The privilege and responsibility of it should both thrill and terrify us. That's why it's never enough to cut, copy, paste, repeat our knowledge and experience. After all, as Abraham Maslow suggests, if the only tool you have is a hammer, you treat everything as if it were a nail. Pumping out the same solutions for different problems won't get us there. The onus is on us to stop, study and speak through our designs to the flavour and flow of that particular city pocket. It's definitely a big responsibility, but it's an even bigger privilege. What if the best briefs come from nature? Published 17th of July 2018. Did you ever wonder what pulsed jet propulsion and jellyfish have in common? For that matter, lithium batteries and pomegranate seeds. While most of us haven't sat around contemplating those connections with nature, there's a trove of new designers and entrepreneurs who are doing just that, and their research could transform the way we design our future world. Over the past few billion years, nature has been perfecting efficient systems and designs that optimise, regenerate and restore balance to organisms and their habitats. Whether it be the termite mound that operates like a subterranean thermal lung, the hanging high-rise of the social weaver, or the complex waterproof home of the paper wasp, the animal kingdom has proven the most ingenious of architects over millennia. Biomimicry is learning how to adopt this genius into our own design forms in order to create something metamorphic and sustainable. Biomimicry is not a new idea, but the way we understand and apply nature's insights is changing. The Wright brothers' understanding of the aerofoil design of birds' wings heralded the modern aviation industry we have today, which is also becoming one of the largest sources of greenhouse gas emissions. But nature works differently and creates the conditions for life to flourish. Ecomimicry embraces the health of the larger system of life and is regenerative. This new thinking is opening up a plethora of ideas about how we can rethink the way we design, build and live. And now we stand on the cusp of the extraordinary, adopting revolutionary yet ancient concepts as the driving force to shape our future designs. Will our homes someday operate as sustainable closed-loop systems? Will waste become the fuel to power our ovens in the future? What if we do eventually crack the code on truly living architecture and homes are grown, not built with brick and mortar? Learning from Mother Nature Biology has long offered inspiration to make our built environments wonderfully adaptable and selective. Living root bridges have been around since at least the 19th century and are a prime example of living and growing infrastructure. Made from growing tree roots in the wettest rainforests of India, root bridges can last for hundreds of years under ideal conditions and naturally self-renew and become stronger as the roots grow thicker. 
We have much to learn from the many Indigenous cultures that have accumulated a deep wisdom on how to live symbiotically with natural systems. Organic architecture was a predominant discipline until the early 20th centuries, grafting nature-inspired aesthetics into traditional buildings. Biophilic design also emerged as a way of incorporating elements like natural light, vegetation, fresh air and raw materials into modern structures in order to promote health, wellness and productivity. Biomimetics further advanced the built environment with examples such as the carnivorous pitcher plants biofilm, helping us develop material to keep rooftop and airplane wings ice and liquid free. The pattern of skin denticles on the Galapagos shark resulted in creating hybrid material to deter the growth of bacteria on hospital walls. And the meteorosensitive qualities of wood fibres offered insight into how we can build structures which biologically respond to climactic change. Yet thanks to technological advancements, we are moving in the direction of what Harvard bioengineer Joanna Eisenberg calls extreme biomimetics, where the simply extraordinaries in nature are unearthed, unpacked and applied to human design solutions. Engineering Metabolic Life The natural evolution of this train of thought is to go beyond copying nature's ideas with manufactured materials and instead incorporate actual biological life into our buildings. At the cutting edge of this movement, there are examples integrating biological responses to promote a self-sustaining, closed-loop natural ecosystem. Hamburg's BIC is one such example. The facade of this zero-carbon apartment complex is filled with millions of microscopic algae plants that feed and grow off nutrients and oxygen, generating heat from sunlight, which is harvested and stored for use in the building. It's the first of its kind and stands to prove that microalgae biofacades can be a viable new source of sustainable energy production to transform the urban environment. Bricks are even becoming smart these days thanks to embedded microbial fuel cells that break down organic waste and generate electricity. Essentially, these walls will act as living engines that read and adapt to both the environment outside and the humans inside it. Each brick acts like an electrical analogous computer that can be programmed to take in inputs such as grey water, carbon dioxide, sunlight, algae, bacteria and nutrients and then produced polished outputs such as water, oxygen, electricity, heat, biodegradable detergents, biomass and biofluorescence. It's another solid step in the direction of producing responsive living architecture that cooperates and co-lives with human activity. The genius of this living system approach is a shift from objects in isolation to ecological relationships of mutual reciprocity and interdependence. This kind of eco-mimicry is based on a fit-for-purpose approach that enables all living systems to renew, evolve and thrive. Buildings of the future can contribute positively to the health and vitality of their local ecological systems. Pushing biomimetic boundaries From smog-eating facades to radiant soil that stimulates regrowth and captures carbon, biomimetic design today is rapidly rising to meet new challenges with natural solutions. The horizon continues to push back thanks to digital technology and innovative thinkers like research lab Terraform One. Pursuing the architecture movement, they are looking at how we can grow homes from the root up. Through an ancient gardening methodology known as pleaching, the trunks of self-grafting trees can provide the structure for an earth ecosystem with a supporting lattice system of branches and supporting vines. Drawing from the organism's perfect pulmonary system, essential elements such as water circulation, ventilation, solar heating and energy consumption are kept in balance, promising leafy livability for the long haul. Meat cells, of all things, are also under the microscope to look at ways to infuse living tissue into buildings and get them literally breathing. But how far can we take this idea in the future? Could we one day reach the point where we no longer construct our buildings but grow them instead? Is it possible that our descendants could live in fully organic and self-sustaining homes? Could our built environment eventually match Mother Nature for being regenerative, adaptable, restorative and in harmony with the surrounding ecosystem? It may sound far-fetched, but it's a tantalising possibility.
Bringing these concepts to sufficient scale will take unprecedented imagination and collaboration. Biologists and bioengineers will need to see their scientific framework and knowledge as invaluable, with significant advancement in research and translation into practical applications required. Engineers and architects will need to work alongside them, applying their big-picture thinking and knowledge of how to design people-centred environments. Government and business will require tight partnership and aligned investments. Land acquisition and planning will also have to transform their approach. As for builders, we would need to go back to the drawing board on what their role would be. It's a level of accountability and cross-disciplinary collaboration that would mark a paradigm shift of epic proportions. Biomimesis Janine Benyus once said, The truth is, natural organisms have managed to do everything we want to do without guzzling fossil fuels, polluting the planet or mortgaging the future. Maybe the smartest thing we'll ever do is stop, look and listen to a world that has been trying to get our attention and then build systems that leave no footprint at all. Part 4. The Heart Ultimately, what lies at the heart of a sustainable future is a heart itself. Technological innovation and policy reformation alone won't turn the tide on climate change and engineers cannot solely architect a restored equilibrium between nature and mankind. To overcome the global problem of climate change, it will take a global people to own it. That response requires an all-hands-on-deck commitment from citizenry to shake off the dust of indifference and shift the narrative towards ecological consciousness. Short of a deep conviction that change starts at home, the fight against climate change will never be fully won. To effectively combat climate change, we need to take the seventh-generation view and ask ourselves, how will the way I live now affect my great-grandchildren to the fourth degree? If sustainability safeguards social equity and human well-being, am I building or breaking the next generation? Of course, collaboration between governments, public and private sectors is needed as never before to present robust, comprehensive solutions that move the needle towards a low-carbon future. But core to this mission is the idea that the responsibility lies with each and every one of us to meet this critical hour. To accomplish true change, we need to do it like Dorothy and her motley crew, together. Each character was motivated differently, but they carried one another's concerns and faced adversity as a team to achieve a mutual win. Similarly, we face the kind of conflict and adversity that can only be overcome through strategic connectedness. It's our choice if we want to go on this journey. On the other hand, we would argue, if we don't go on it together, we won't be able to go on it at all. Climate Change, A People Problem and a People Solution, published on the 15th of October 2019. We are getting increasingly concerned over climate change, or so the most recent research suggests. Needless to say, we are aligning our personal convictions and civic action accordingly, right? Not necessarily. In recent elections across the world, significant numbers cast their vote on policies that downplay or outright ignore the need to address climate change. What is going on here? The dangerously naive view could be that we can always dial up the speed or strength of our response if and when things get bad, and maybe the stunning rise of cheap renewables feeds that false complacency. Well, if things get really bad, we can just build more solar, so it's all good. With coal and gas-fired electricity generation accounting for around 38% of global CO2 emissions and with zero emissions electricity generation proven to be technically solvable, maybe people can be somewhat forgiven for thinking we can easily merely extrapolate our success with renewable power generation into other emission sources, somehow mopping up all the other greenhouse gas emissions. But then again, we aren't exactly doing a good job of that so far, are we? If the arc of the universe is bending towards a low-carbon future, it sure isn't bending fast enough. If we want to build a viable future, we have to contend with all the root causes of anthropogenic emissions. Addressing climate change must be as much about the human issue, the anthropo, as the emissions production, the genic. Our technologies and methods alone are not the problem. We are the problem. 
To overcome this wicked problem, our solutions will have to rely on a dramatic reconfiguring of cultural, commercial, regulatory and economic relationships in terms of energy in particular. And looking at how past energy revolutions have become the springboards to successful human progress and prosperity, we know that we can do it. However, to accomplish this feat will require a lot more than the technical, such as the solar panels and CO2 sinks that might first come to mind. It will include a multi-layered transformation. A cultural mandate. The idea of technology reconfiguring our physical and cultural worlds and causing us to rethink the impossible is nothing new. Even before the invention of the steam engine, society has been shape-shifting to the evolving contours of industrial change and adapting its cultural convictions to absorb the new socioeconomic norms our inventions have wrought. Whereas prior to the 19th century, cities were laid out with the expectation that it would take multiple days to travel between them, rail suddenly brought cities close together. Cities were compressed and connected, markets opened up, opportunities flourished. We shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. And yet there was originally considerable resistance to the steam engine. It was new and foreign. A shift in mindset was required to leverage its extraordinary potential. Today is no different. Indeed, the world faces challenges as never seen. Global environmental degradation, species loss, global heating, increased weather volatility, the breakneck pace of disruption and change, massive interconnectedness and immediacy of global markets, cultural polarisation and tribalism, rising affluence with unprecedented appetites for scarce resources. But arguably, our technologies and innovations are poised to buffer, even alleviate some of these problems. Perhaps the issue is not so much can we address climate change as are we prepared to? Are we willing to own the problem to such a degree that our personal, cultural and societal actions make a positive difference in this critical hour? The need for regulation riverbanks. What would climate change as addressed by culture look like? Does it mandate we trade our T-bone steaks for lower footprint proteins and compost on our rooftops? Not necessarily, but it will certainly require a radical recalculation of the economic and regulatory systems that shape our patterns of consumption. Some form of carbon pricing, call it a carbon tax, carbon trading, zero emissions certificates, is proving relatively successful in some countries as a targeted corrective to prohibit unsustainable economic activities in their entirety without it being at the expense of other market distortions. In addition, the revenues from carbon initiatives can be pumped back into public wallets, used to increase green spending and stimulate the economy, compensate adversely affected industries and communities, and or be addressing some of the political and behavioural barriers. Carbon pricing alone is not sufficient, neither as a means to achieve our articulated Paris Agreement targets, nor to shift public and political acceptability on the matter. As history has shown us, there are challenges aplenty for any nation considering this. For countries on the wrong side of the quinoa curtain, what energy technologies are available to underpin our sustainable development under cap-and-trade or carbon pricing regulations? Renewables, fusion by another name. On the long-now timescale of thousands of years, we could potentially build a Dyson sphere for an abundant energy supply, though we will need many more Musks, Bezoses and Gateses to engineer sun-scale structures. But in our own lifetimes, we have an opportunity in developing countries to leapfrog traditional models of energy infrastructures to build low-cost, cleaner energy options from the ground up that could help lift billions out of poverty. In sub-Saharan Africa, where population growth is expected to outstrip electrification efforts, renewable energy is expected to account for about two-thirds of capacity additions and for about three-quarters of the population gaining access to either grid or decentralised electricity. Tomorrow's technologies take a different approach to achieving long-term sustainability. Nuclear fusion for power generation is estimated to be fewer than 20 years away. And as the ride joke goes, it has been that way for the last six decades. 
Fusion does away with most of the health, safety and geopolitical challenges of today's widely used fission reactors, but still requires significant advances in materials before being able to continuously produce more energy than it consumes. And even without building our own fusion reactor or building that Dyson sphere around the sun, is the middle ground to make better use of the sun's own fusion reactor here on Earth by short-circuiting Earth's pesky rotation and weather systems that interrupt wind and solar power. Space-based solar power takes a number of forms, but typically combines satellite-based solar PV collection system with a narrow microwave beam down to a receiver on Earth, with one concept coming from China described as having a scale of 2,000 gigawatts, equivalent to a couple of thousand large fossil fuel power stations. Considering the sun's 10 billion year shelf life, it's safe to say this energy source won't run dry anytime soon, or at least we will run out of microwave popcorn well before it goes dark. The 21st century is steeped in remarkable complexity and challenge, but also in opportunity and even optimism. Climate change is an anagram for mega-technical, and yes, our technology can be a massive enabler, building on the solutions already within reach. However, the most effective and disruptive of technologies, the strictest of regulations and the most efficient of markets will not suffice in and of themselves. We need to rouse ourselves from indifference, steer private and public investment, make choices and take actions that bend the arc of the universe more sharply towards low-carbon energy, food production, transportation and industry. Voting not to change or abstaining altogether will inevitably lead us to catastrophic change. At the heart of addressing the challenge is a cultural shift and a commitment among all of us to own the problem and leverage our best selves for the best possible future. Your part. To get back home to a world that is healthy and whole, a brick road won't unfortunately take you there. Today's navigational systems are highly sophisticated, somewhat elusive and still in the making. After all, our best navigation systems are people themselves. Just like Dorothy and her friends, the journey is still making us. We don't need wizard endorsement to authorise our potential or a technology elixir, nor will political intervention alone reroute the future. All that we need to win the future is already there and within us as individuals. We can take this road if we take it together. Let's not lose sight of the horizon, but stretch for braver sights as we harness big courage, big brains and a big heart to write a better ending. 